You know, it's a little chilly in there. Did you know it's warmer up toward the front? <laughs> Wouldn't we like to be that away? Well, we are missing John and, and uh, Kathy, aren't we? We, we get the updates about uh, John's condition. He's, he's coming along, but he's, it's kind of slow. I'm, I'm going to speak from up here because I'm going to write something on the board. And if you'd like, you could come up a little closer so you could see it and read it. <laughs> if you don't want to, that's fine. The text that, that, uh, that Art read for us was a statement made by Jesus. Jesus said, Essentially, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Now, that text actually means, and the text itself carries the context that Jesus is saying, I have overpowered the world. I have defeated the world. I've overcome the world. Basically, that's what he's saying. I've overcome the world. Consider what it would take now. And uh, we're talking about overwhelming, not just a village or a town or a community. Jesus said, I have overwhelmed, I have overcome, I have defeated the world. Now, up until this time, which is about... 30 A.D., after his, after his birth, sometimes A.D., is, it's actually, we don't, it does not mean after death. It means Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. In about 30 A.D., there had been several attempts at overpowering the whole world. Not just an area, but the whole world. There's been a lot of monarchies that had taken place in the history of mankind up until the time of Jesus. But there had only been four attempts, four basic attempts, to actually overpower and overwhelm the entire world. There were the the Ptolemies in Egypt that had ruled their kingdoms. There had been the Chaldeans who had ruled their areas of of uh, control, but there had been only four attempts made by four rulers to actually control the entire world. That was, of course, the uh, Chaldean Empire of of Nebuchadnezzar. That that was the Ptolemies under Darius. That was uh, Alexander the Great, the Grecians, and then the Romans. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor that was said to have ruled the world. But consider what it would take to overwhelm and control not just your community, not just your area, but the whole world, the known civilized world. Alexander the Great, of course we have a lot of information about him. His father was Philip of Macedon. And his father attempted, made the attempt to begin with, to overpower not just Greece and the contiguous areas, but the whole world, the whole known world. Everything that everybody knew at that time, that was the world. Philip attempted it, and it was left unto his son to accomplish it, Alexander the Great. And he was able to conquer the world through sheer manpower and ingenious war machines. When you conquer the world, you have to do it militarily. You don't conquer the world any other way. If you're of this earth, that's the way you conquer the world, with overwhelming superior forces. So he he invented the phalanx, Alexander did, the way of battling, and some, some structures that he could use to provide support for his... Uh, troops. So he, he conquered the world through his individual efforts, through his efforts of uh, expertise. The Romans came along and conquered the world through their greatest war machine that the world had ever known. 
He, he contrived a system of, of fighting in phalanxes with this phalanxes, of course. But he also, he also used the uh, different manipulations of his legions in order to outmaneuver the enemy and overcome them. He overcame Hannibal in this, in this fashion. The Romans did. Hannibal fought for the control of the world. Hannibal of Carthage. Remember, he's the guy that took 37 elephants with 30,000 men and crossed the Alps to try to outmaneuver the Romans, and he did. But he eventually ended up being conquered by the Romans. The Romans conquered the world by their superior expertise in warfare. There were costly battles that were involved in these. And yet Jesus, standing before one of the representatives of the conqueror of the world, said, I have conquered the world. I have overpowered the world. I have won. I have, I have, I have uh, overcome. He defeated his enemies, and God crowned him for it, for defeating his enemies. Now I'm, I'm speaking to people who know this. I'm speaking to a crowd that understands that Jesus won. But do you actually understand the totality of his victory? Do you actually understand that he became the king of all kings, the prince of peace, but not only that, the prince of the powers of this earth. Jesus became the ultimate monarch of the entire world. Now I'm going to read a couple of texts from the book of Daniel. If you have Daniel, you might want to read along with me. In Daniel chapter 2, Jesus was being, was being prophesied about by Daniel, and he, it came about because Daniel had translated or had uh, interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was one of those who had conquered the ancient world, the Chaldean world. And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream about four beasts. And at, at the conclusion of the dream, he had asked all of his necromancers and all of his wise men to interpret it for him, and the only one that could do it was Daniel. And he didn't even tell Daniel his dream. Daniel knew what the dream was because God had revealed it to him. But here's, here's what happened. Daniel said, O king, you saw a great image. This great image had a brightness that was excellent. And he stood before you, and the form thereof was terrible. So Nebuchadnezzar saw a big image. And I called it a beast. It really wasn't a beast. There was a beast mentioned later on. But it was a great image. And it says, This image's head, what, what Nebuchadnezzar saw, was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass. His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. You saw till that a stone was cut out without hands, which stoned the image, which which smote the image upon his feet, feet which were of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing fold. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now Nebuchadnezzar saw four images, or saw one image that represented four major kingdoms. And Daniel interpreted that for him. And he says in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, and he said, in the days of these kings, talking about the last one that was made out of stone and, and, uh, and, and part of miry clay, he said, the God of heaven set up a kingdom which should never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass thereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is certain. So he's saying there's a small stone that's going to smite the image at the feet and break in pieces all of those kingdoms and destroy them, consume them. Now going to Daniel chapter 7, Belshazzar had a, had a dream also, and Daniel interpreted this. And this is where the beast comes in that I mentioned earlier. I shouldn't have mentioned that, but the beast comes in because Belshazzar saw four, four beasts instead of an image with four different parts. And Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Daniel mentioned these four, four beasts and what they were and who they were. They were the, the Chaldean Empire. They were the Persian Empire. They were the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire. Now he's saying that there was one like the Son of Man that's coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, when Jesus made the statement to his disciples and he'll later talk to the representatives of the Roman government, he said, I have overcome. I have prevailed. I have conquered the world. I have conquered the world. And this is exactly what the apostles preached after Jesus rose from the grave. That Jesus had indeed and in fact conquered the world. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 32, it says, This Jesus whom God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, this is Peter preaching, he said, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou on my right hand, until I make your foes your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he has exalted his Son into the heavens, and he has conquered the world. He's made that same Jesus the Lord and Christ. Now read with me in Psalm in Philippians chapter 2 at verse 9. Paul said, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the world. That's what he's saying. In 1 Timothy 6.14, Paul again says that you keep this commandment without spot, unrebuked until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He will show. He will show who is the blessed only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 1.5 says this, John was on the Isle of Patmos and he received the information from God. And he said, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What I'm saying to you, brother and sister in Christ, is that Jesus Christ overcame the world, overpowered the world, overwhelmed the world, and was at the, after his resurrection when he was exalted by his Father into heaven itself, he won the victory and he overwhelmed the entire world. He did. 
He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That I believe. Now, He is proclaimed as the King of kings. He is proclaimed to be sitting on His throne. However, there's some doubt in the minds of some believers that He is actually in control. That He actually has overwhelmed. It's believed that the evidence that the right will prevail over evil will be after Jesus comes back to this earth and sits on an earthly throne and does it the way the Roman empires do it. The Roman emperors did it. They have to be overpowered and they have to be conquered by their enemies in the same fashion as the earth. But you know what Jesus told His disciples? He said, don't be afraid of the world because I have overcome the world. That expectation that has occupied the minds of many for centuries is that He hasn't done it yet, that He's not on His throne at this point. And the reason being that it is misunderstood that Jesus rules in the same fashion that earthly rulers rule. Jesus told His disciples, and as a matter of fact, He even told the Roman representatives, that He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight that I would not be taken. Matter of fact, He told His apostles when they were taking Him, the armed individuals were taking Him in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to get Him, You know what he told Peter? He said, put your sword away. He said, don't you know that I could, if I wanted to, I could call upon my Father and He would send me twelve legions of angels. Seventy-two thousand armed angels, if He wanted them. But He didn't want it. That wasn't the way He was going to do it. We want Jesus to overpower and overwhelm the world the same way the Romans did. We want it done that way. We want it by force. We want it to happen in that fashion. And many of us, and many have at times, and sometimes I've grappled with this myself, why does it look as if the enemy is winning the battle? Now when I'm talking to you, and I'm going to talk to you again next week, if you come back, I'm going to talk to you again next week about the fact that you're winning. You may not feel like it at times, but you're winning. You're a victor. You have overcome. And you'll continue to overcome. Because you have a leader that has already done it for you and shown you how to do it. Now, We look at alarm at sometimes at the overwhelming number of unbelievers. It seems like they're overpowering the world. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So we look at numbers. Eight billion people, population right now in the world. Eight billion. Less than three billion are said to be professed believers in Jesus. Now, that's less than a third, less than a third of the total population of the world that actually profess to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Less than a third. And if we, were, if we are to believe the pollsters, they tell us that of that 2.8 billion people that profess to believe in Jesus Christ, that less than 20% of those are totally committed that it's more than just a hobby for them, that it's something that controls their life. So we're looking at numbers. What are we looking at? Well, maybe 600,000 people? Can that be? Out of 8 billion population? So we make a mistake right away. We look at it and say, well, it looks like the unbelievers are winning the battle. They're multiplying exponentially. They're, they're multiplying. And believers are shrinking instead of expanding. 
And we think, well, the battle's not going so well. But we, 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 we start out with a faulty premise, and that premise is that quantity, the amount, prevails over and, and is greater than quality. Quality, genuineness, pureness. It's the same mistake that David made. Second Samuel chapter 22. David got to looking out over his kingdom. Now he's ruling all these people. And he got thinking about, I wonder how many soldiers I have. I wonder how strong my army is. And so he sent Joab, his captain of all his forces. He sent him out to, to count all of his men. How many do I have? How strong are we? How powerful are we? And Joab tried to reason with him. said, you, David, you shouldn't do that. that. That's something you shouldn't do. David didn't listen to his advice. He, he numbered them anyway. He got in trouble. He got in trouble with God over it. And God punished him for it. This thinking is wrong. That we're looking at numbers. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. What does the world look at? Numbers, right? Jesus said, we don't do that in my kingdom. We don't do it that way. That's not us. That's not how we do it. Luke chapter 13, verse 23 and 24. One of them said to him, one that was listening to him, he said, Lord, are there few that be saved? Just a few of us? He said unto them, Strive to enter in the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in. 2.8 billion. But, he said, they'll not be able. He said, there are few that will enter in. Matthew 22:14 Many are called but few are chosen. Well, Solomon saw this a long time ago when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, "I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. The race isn't to the fastest guy. Turtle in the hair. You've heard that story before." He said, "I saw this, the race isn't to the swift. The battle is not to the strong." Neither bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, or favor to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. So old Solomon kind of realized, well, you know, maybe Numbers doesn't tell the whole story. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, that illustration was made a long time ago for us. It talks about the time of the flood. Peter said, sometimes... When sometimes they were disobedient, when once, when the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Out of all of humanity, eight people got on the ark. That's not very many, is it? Now then, let's go to the board. Can you see this? Do I need another light? Yeah. This light? Okay, there are four things. Let's just talk about what we know about battles, about conquering the world. The generals and the, the, uh, those who were pushing to conquer the world knew that there are four things that were needed in order to overcome and conquer the world. The first thing that you have to have to conquer the world is you have to have overpowering forces. That's an abbreviation. Overpowering forces. You have to have overwhelming superior forces. You have to have superior strength. Let's call that SS. Superior strength. You cannot conquer the world with just a few in number. It can't be done. Jesus gave this advice a long time ago in the book of Luke. He's talking about it. And I think 
maybe about Luke 12 or 13. He was talking about what king goes to war if he doesn't count his forces. He won't go to the war with 10,000 against someone who has 20,000. So the world knows, the earth knows, that in order to conquer the world, to defeat an enemy, the enemy has to be overpowered and overrun with superior armed forces and weaponry. That's the way you do it. Hannibal almost conquered the Romans because he had overwhelming superior forces. Elephants opposed horses. Did you know they had to train the horses to be around the elephants? The Romans did. Hannibal knew that he, and he had forces. He had, I think some say that he had something like 60,000 men with him when he crossed the Alps with 37 elephants. We, we still don't know where he got his elephants, but he had them. And he overpowered the Romans. And he won. But then, of course, he, he, uh, he lost later because the Romans overwhelmed him with their superior military tactics and forces. They had the, they had the people. They had the forces. And they had the weaponry. The second thing that has to happen, if you're going to conquer the world, you have to disarm your enemy. Disarm them. Take their weapons away. When, uh, when the West was being conquered in the, on this continent, and uh, people were moving westward trying to gain land and ground, Mexico had a great swath of ownership of United States land, territory. Went up into Wyoming, as a matter of fact, the, what they claimed is theirs. But they, they sure had the, the uh, place that we call Texas. That was theirs. And so when, when uh, Stephen F. Austin made a deal with the, uh, with the Mexican government that he would, uh, he would make sure that the people who came into Texas, into Mexican territory, that when they came in, they would do certain things in, in uh, an agreement with the Mexican government so that they could settle that land. And one of the things they, they said they would do would disarm themselves. They wouldn't bring any guns. Don't you see why, why Santa Ana asked them not to bring any guns? Well, sure you do. You can't conquer a people if they're armed. So the second thing you have to do, what the conquering army has to do, is take away their guns. And take away any ability they have to make guns, to arm themselves, to make weapons of war. The third thing is necessary is that the enemy has to agree to abandon their own ideology and accept the ideology of the conquerors. You know what I'm talking about? So... If you're going to if you're going to come into into Texas, the the people coming from the east settling into Texas, and the Mexican government is saying you have to become Catholics. That's what he said. You can't have any land here unless you become a Catholic. They were Protestants. They were coming out of a, a society where they were everything but Catholics. People had left the European continent because Catholicism was dominating them and they didn't want to be enslaved with Catholicism. So when they came into Mexico, they had to sign an agreement. I'll, I'll get some land if I agree to become a Catholic. Change your ideology. So, you have to agree to the way I look at Life and the way I look at government, right? People that come into this country have to accept democracy, right? People that go into Russia have to accept communism, correct? 
we're talking ideology. So you cannot conquer an enemy without conquering their ideology, their concept of who they are and, and how they should behave themselves in society. Correct? Third one probably is the most important. Not the most, no, not the most important, but one of the most important. That is there must be unconditional surrender. You have to totally surrender. Unconditional means you cannot say, oh, okay, I'll give up this, but I won't give up that. I'll quit this, but I won't quit that. I'll let you have this, but I won't let you have that. You follow what I'm saying? Unconditional surrender. I mean, you just have to say, it's all, it's your way, not my way at all. Now think about this. We haven't really lived, us here today, some of us are old enough, to have lived through a conquering or an attempt to conquer the world. But we're too little to remember it. I was in diapers. I guess they had diapers then. <laughs> anyway, I had a little guy. And I'm 83 years old, almost. 82. Almost 83. Anyway, I, I think uh, we've got some others here that were little guys. Most of us in this audience, really. During the time that that uh, the Axis forces, which was Germany and Japan and Italy, attempted to conquer the world. Made an attempt to conquer the world. Really did. Now, they didn't get it done. First of all, they did not have superior forces. They started out that way, but they didn't have. Some of the battles were won by the Axis forces, but after a while, they were not able to have the forces necessary or the military power necessary to carry out what they needed to do to conquer the world. What happened? Russia invaded Germany from the north, the Allied forces from the south and from the west. And in the final days of Hitler's regime, uh, the city of Berlin itself, which was the capital of Nazism, Nazi Germany, was bombed. Hitler committed suicide. He then appointed his... Uh, successor, who was the legendary maritime submarine commander, and I think his name, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, I've heard it before, read it before, Carl Donitz, D-O-E-N-I-T-Z, named him as president. Then he had some military commanders that were still trying to stay in the battle. Yodel was one of them, J-D-O-L, I think, J-O-D-L. Anyway, they were overwhelmed. Militarily, they were overwhelmed. They were bombed into submission. So those forces were overcome. In the, uh, in the east, Hirohito, who was the emperor of Japan, was being bombed into submission by the atomic bomb dropped on two different cities. Hiroshima... Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Two atomic bombs dropped on that small nation. Plus overwhelming forces against them and they were forced into uh, submission. So, they were forced because their forces were overwhelmed. They didn't have the force to do it. They were disarmed. These countries were disarmed. They were stripped of any opportunity or any ability to
to make a weapon of war. We disarmed them. The Marshall Plan in Europe, and then under General MacArthur in Japan, which was under the Allied Forces uh, control, under military control, these two nations were subdued and conquered themselves, disarmed completely, and they couldn't make any more war machinery. And the ideology was changed. You know what that means? That means that they could not teach any longer what was taught by Hitler, what was, what was taught in their schools, their universities, in their books. No one could be left in a teaching position to continue to teach the ideology of white supremacy in Nazi Germany or in that whole area or in Italy. Mussolini was, was deposed. And so his social, socialistic idea of government was deposed. It was gone. And the same thing, of course, in Japan. So the Axis powers were stripped. And all of a sudden, Hirohito was no longer the sun god in Japan. So the ideology was changed. And anyone who advanced that was imprisoned. Put in prison. Taken out of it. They, they were actually uh, put in disarray and controlled in jail or they were deported. They could no longer teach those ideologies. It was denounced and replaced by democracy. And there was a, there was a unconditional surrender. You know what that means? It means that when, when the United Forces of, this, of uh, the Allies, which is Great Britain and Russia and United States and Australia and Canada and so forth, when they, uh, when they asked for terms of surrender, some, some of the generals in, in the German army wanted to surrender all, but they wanted terms. We want terms. We want to be able to do this. We want to be able to do that. And so they listed some terms. And so did the Japanese. We want terms. You know what the Allied forces said? No terms. No terms. Complete, total, unconditional surrender. And both countries, Italy as well, was placed under martial law. In no terms. You give up, you give up. That's what you do. You give up. And we're not here anything. And they tried, as a matter of fact, Yodel tried. One of the military generals of the German forces, he tried to negotiate. No. When the world is conquered, when you're conquered, you have no terms of negotiation. There's no negotiation. That's it. You're through. You're through as a people. You're through as a force. You're gone. Except you accept the unconditional terms of surrender. You'll be jailed or exiled. That's it. Now, how do we apply that to Jesus? That's the point, isn't it? How do we apply that all to Him? I'm going to read a text. Micah chapter 4. And this is talking about Jesus. Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In the last days it shall be come to pass that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. He's at the top. Not the bottom. At the top. And people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of His ways. We'll walk in His paths. Now look at that. He is going to conquer the world. 
The mountain of the Lord is up here. We're down here in the valley. We will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion. That was where David lived in the city of Jerusalem. Where do you think the law came from on the day of Pentecost? Where do you think the word of the Lord was first preached to, the, to those who had been conquered? In the city of Jerusalem? In the temple mountain? On Zion. That's where the law went out. In Zion. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, they didn't, they didn't get out too fast because they stayed around Jerusalem for a while after the gospel was first preached and everybody was obeying the gospel. 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost, they were baptized. It was just a raging fire among them. They stuck right there in the city of Jerusalem. They didn't want to go anywhere. They want to stay there. So along came a fellow by the name of Saul and he began to whip up on them. Persecuted them. It said, the disciples were scattered and went everywhere preaching the gospel. Everywhere from where? From Jerusalem. Okay. Now we're looking at a, we're looking at a conquering force going out. And it said, He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their shares into plow, their, plow, their swords into plowshares. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. You know why? Because in the kingdom of God, it is not like the kingdom of men. It's just not like that. We don't need superior firepower in order to force the enemy into submission. Interesting, huh? Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Not going to do it that way. Not going to go out with the sword. The Muslims advance their religion by the sword. That's the way it goes out. By the sword. And so does the kingdom of Jesus. By the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Gospel of Christ. They shall learn war no more. So you don't have to you don't have to do it this way. This is not the way you conquer the world. Jesus said, My my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, Don't you know? And this is this is found in, in chapter nineteen of John. He said, Don't you know that you've got to answer me? Or I have the power to put you to death. You know what Jesus said? He said, you couldn't do anything except it be given you from heaven. You couldn't touch me except my Father gave you the permission to do it. So, it's a different kingdom, isn't it? In order to understand how this could be in the absence of Jesus, now look, look at this. He said, he'll judge among many nations. He said, they'll set every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. An unconquered and unconquerable people in the kingdom of God. First of all, we have to understand one thing about this kingdom. Mankind is not the enemy. Our fellow man is not the enemy. The liar is not my enemy. The cheater is not my enemy. The adulterer is not my enemy. The one who swears false is not my enemy. Who's my enemy? Well, it's not my fellow man. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 through 56. A couple of the disciples of Jesus, a couple of the apostles, as a matter of fact, had to come to this understanding. It said, It came to pass when the time was come that he should go up and be received up. That's Jesus. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was up in the north country in Galilee, and he was coming down to Jerusalem, and he had to pass through the territory. And it said, He sent messengers before His face, and they went 
and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. The Samaritans, the Samaria was populated by those ten tribes that had left Israel years and years ago, hundreds of years ago. So they had settled in the area of Samaria in between Galilee and Jerusalem, right by the side of the river Jordan that ran north and south. Jesus had to go through that area to get to Jerusalem. So as they passed through, he set his face like he was going to go there. And the people that he was going by understood it and they didn't like it. Matter of fact, they didn't like any Jew. They were Samaritans. They felt like they were as worthy as the Jews were of God's favor. So they, they uh, probably derided him, probably shouted insults at him, probably, probably did all they could, made, made gestures at him. Anyway, they didn't receive him. When the disciples James and John saw this, so it wasn't just that they shut their doors, they were probably saying some nasty things to him. They said, Lord, will you, that, will, will you that we command fire to come down out of heaven and destroy these people? How about getting a, how about getting a, a howitzer and blowing them off the face of the earth? That's what he's asking. Why don't, we, why don't we whip them and consume them, even as Elias did? Elijah's actually is what he's saying. He turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives. Wow. So when Jesus is going to conquer, He's not going to go out and whip people. He didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. Yet there is an enemy. In the uh, book of Psalms 110 and verse 1, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. He said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who are his enemies? 1 Peter 5 8 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, and a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, talks about the devil. Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. So the battle, my friend, is against the enemy, and that's the devil. And we have to understand because his kingdom doesn't depend upon forced allegiance, Jesus will never force anyone to bow his knee. When people see who he is, see what power he has, eventually he will show when people see that they'll bow their knee, but it's bowed voluntarily, not forcibly. He does not force his enemy to the ground. He forces his enemy to stand up and to be saved. And the pure force of the power of Jesus is in love. And forgiveness. It's a matter of complete and voluntary submission. Come unto me, he said, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus overpowers us. He has superior forces. He has overwhelming forces. And the forces he uses to pry open the door of our heart and to make a friend out of an enemy is the cross. His love and grace. And my friend, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It is irresistible. Irresistible grace. Overwhelming power. And He disarms us. He takes away our pride He takes away our hatred. He takes away our unforgiving spirit. He takes away our fear. He takes away our envy. He takes away our blabbing tongue that says bad things. He takes away all of these. He disarms His enemies. He disarms us. 
And he changes our ideology. He makes us think differently than we've already thought. We are told that in order to follow Him, we have to have complete faith, absolute faith in Him. That's the surrender. Unconditional surrender. When you come to Jesus, you have to give it all up. can't bring anything with you. Matter of fact, He said, we're going to do this this way. When you come to me, you have to start all over again. Like you were a baby. That's how, that's how far down you have to go. You have to forget all this other stuff. You've got, you've got to start as an infant. Dick and Eva said, talk to, he said, we know your teacher come from God. Jesus looked at him and said, hey, if a man comes to me, he's got to be born again. Start all over. You can't come as a grown man into my kingdom. Well, that's the power of faith, isn't it? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And we're told if any man comes to God, he must come by the avenue of faith. And so, there's a total, complete surrender. Jesus said, the unrighteous shall not come into the kingdom. Can't get into the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Can't get into the kingdom. He said, but such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he named all these unrighteous. He said, you can't get in. You can't get in. Why can't you get in? Because you have to be, you have to be unconditionally surrendered. You can't come to terms. You can't say, Lord, I'm going to barter. I, I, you, you got me. You overwhelmed me. You're the superior force. You're the commander-in-chief. Uh, what, are, what are the terms of... What are the terms? And you know what Jesus said? Unconditional, absolute surrender. Jesus is the King. Let's sing that song of invitation.